Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. We're going to read there as we go through this book of the Bible, starting in verse 11, Revelation chapter 19. Um, if you got here on time this morning, you saw the baptisms, and uh, you ought to get here on time and see the baptisms. I love, this, I love that the five people got baptized, a young lady, I saw a family with her before the service, I think her grandparents maybe, that's the most important part of a family now is the grandparents. Family of four baptized then together. Last week we baptized um, seven people, um, six of the, a, a child and six adults. And I, I just tell you, I, I love seeing that. I never get tired of seeing people following believers' baptism. And um, I commend that to you if you've not yet been baptized as a believer. I want to commend it to you. Just uh, let us know. We'll talk to you more about it. Let's open our Bibles, though, to Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read beginning with verse 11. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Can you follow along? Stay with me. Um, boy, we've been watching as the events have unfolded of the Great Tribulation, come to the great, end of the Great Tribulation, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Let's read beginning with verse 11. The Bible says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were, that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. Well... Let's look at this incredible story, the end of the time of the great tribulation and the return of the Lord, and then we'll see the millennial reign and all that takes place after that in the, in the really exciting chapters to come. Um, sometimes when I'm talking to someone who doesn't know the Lord, they might they say sometimes something like this to me. Maybe you've heard someone say something sort of like this to you. You Christians believe some crazy things. Some crazy things. Maybe they're talking about the Jonah or crossing on the Red Sea or something, and they say you Christians believe some crazy things. I always want to say to them, it's way worse than you think. <laughs> we believe there's a God who's big enough to can speak the world into existence. The universe could be, could be called into existence by his spoken word. That he created this world and made us in his image, and yet we rebelled against him. And we believe that God loved us despite the fact that we were sinners, and that God sent his own son into this world to live for us, 
and that he would die on the cross to take the penalty for our sins. That's what we believe. And that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive. And that one day he's going to return to this world riding on a white horse. That's what we believe. It's worse than you think. And let's tell you, God's big enough to do all of those things. To speak the world into existence. To give us this great gospel message. To warn us about what's going to transpire in the future. And to tell us that he's coming back one day. So let's note some principles about the return of the king. And I, I love that the king returns. I love that the Lord Jesus, who ascended back after his earthly ministry, will come back to rapture his church. I love that one day after the tribulation, then the Lord will return into this world and live here uh, in that millennial reign. I love that he returns. And I want you to note three things. If you're a note taker, you could write these down. Number one, note that the return of the king reveals his majesty. It reveals his majesty. Maybe you think of Jesus as just a baby in a manger, and he was, but he's more than that. Or just Jesus meek and mild, and he is, but he's more than that. Let's note what the Bible says here about Jesus in this passage. It really echoes much of what we see in the book of Revelation, something of the greatness and the glory of the Lord. We see it in his names. Verse 11, in verse 11, the Bible um, says, I saw heaven open and there was a white horse and its rider is called faithful and true. That's what he's called, faithful and true. The Bible is saying here that Jesus is dependable and you can count on him. Others will let you down. Listen, if you live long enough, other people will let you down. I would let you down. You, you, you will let other people down. But the Lord Jesus, he is faithful. You can depend upon him. And you can count on him. And he is true. He tells us the truth. He embodies the truth. And we can depend upon him. In verse 12, we see more of who he is. Verse 12 says, his eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. And he had a name written that no one knows except himself. So there's a name that we don't even know. No one else knows it. God is greater than we fully know. The Lord Jesus is greater than we fully know. There's more to learn, more to know. I feel like I know more about the Lord than I did years ago. But I, I realize how much more there is to know. And in heaven one day, I'll know more than I know now. I'll know the Lord more fully than I know. But there'll be more still to, to learn. Do you remember back in, do you remember when you were in kindergarten? For some of you, that was a long time ago. Maybe I'm asking too much of you on a Sunday morning. But do you remember kind of back kindergarten and you thought, I know just about everything there is to know. Isn't that what you thought? I know just about everything there is to know because you didn't know what you didn't know. And so you could say, well, I kind of know everything. I pretty much know all I need to know. And then you found out you didn't know what you didn't know and there was more for you to learn. And maybe you feel that way about the things of God. I kind of know everything I need to know about the Lord. I know everything I need to know about Christianity. I kind of know all I need to know about faith. I kind of know all, I, all there is to know about the Bible. But the more, you just don't know what you don't know. And the more you come to study the Lord Jesus, the more you read the Bible for yourself, the more you worship him, the more you grow in faith, the more you sharpen yourself with others, the more you find out you just didn't know what you didn't know. And there's more to know still. And for the rest of your life, you can learn more about the things of God. And one day in heaven, we'll see him more fully and discover how much more there is to understand of who he is. In verse 13, he's called uh, the word of God. The Bible says he wore 
verse 13, he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, John uses this in the book of John, where Jesus is described as the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're reminded that Jesus reveals the Father to us, and Jesus reveals truth to us. One of the things Jesus does for us is to help us to know who God is, that God's not just out there, someone who made this universe, just a creator who made this world, and we see the evidence of that creation. We're reminded that we can know not just what he did, but we can know him. He reveals the Lord to us. He reveals God to us. God, God wants you to know who he is. So if you don't know very much about God, it is not because God doesn't want you to know. God has given you the written word that you can read for yourself. If you've not yet read the New Testament, read through that several times. Find out what God has to say in the New Testament. And he gives us the Lord Jesus, who is the word of God, the demonstration of who God is. And he's described here as the, the word, the revelation, the revelation of truth and the revelation of the Father. And then in verse 16, it's a fascinating verse. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. Well, what is that name? It's not, it's not the only time we see this name in the Bible describing the Lord. More, more than just the baby born in a manger. More than just Jesus, meek and mild. But notice the description. King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's talking about the power of God. How Jesus is more than just... He was a baby who came into this world. But think of this. The God who created the universe would condescend to come into this world and live among us, to be born in a, in a stable and placed in a manger. And yet he is king of kings and lord of lords. And the Bible wants you to see that. The book of Revelation wants us to see who the Lord is. And we see more of his majesty and his greatness. It's why we, by the way, it's why we worship him because he is worthy of our worship. It's why we sing praise to him, because he's worthy of our praises. And we see something of that in his names, these names and the many others that describe him. We notice this from his appearance. In verse 11, we see him riding a white horse. It represents the conquest that the Lord will perform on our behalf. Ultimately, all, all the enemies will fall. In verse 12, the Bible says his eyes are like fiery, like a fiery flame. I, I said... Um, so Vicky and I started dating in high school. I've been married for many, many years now. I did not know for the first couple of years that I was dating her that her eyes were brown. I didn't really think in color. I didn't understand. I thought the pupil was where you found color. I never could understand why people could differentiate. They all look the same to me. I understand it better now. But the Lord Jesus, you can't miss his eyes. Like, like a fiery flame. You see something of the intensity of the Lord Jesus. There's something memorable about the intensity of this moment with the Lord Jesus. Verse 12 says there are many crowns on his head. Not just a crown, but many crowns. He has power, and he has ultimate power. He is king, but he is king of kings, and lord of lords, and many crowns on his head. Verse 13 describes him wearing a robe dipped in blood. Some suggest this is the blood of the Lord Jesus shed on Calvary. Some suggest it's the blood of the enemies that he'll battle here at Armageddon. But ultimately, it is certainly a description of judgment either way. In the Old Testament, we'll see the judgment God brings to sin and the sacrifice that is made. In the New Testament, Jesus 
reminds us of the judgment of sin and that Jesus' blood is the means by which we can be forgiven. The battle here that we see is a part of the judgment that we see from the Lord. And I want you to see a little of the majesty of the Lord. Some of you have thought of Jesus as, for you, he's fine. You know, good teacher. You've said, Jesus is just all right with me. But I want you to see who he is. Faithful and true. The word of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Eyes like a fiery flame riding this white horse. Crowns, many crowns on his head. The robe dipped in blood. I want you to see a little of the greatness of the king. And one day we'll see that more fully. But don't miss the opportunity this day. One day we'll worship him more fully. Don't miss the opportunity of worshiping him. Worshiping him this day. There's a second principle I want you to note about the return of the king. The return of the king accomplishes justice. Now, justice is a word that we will talk about often in our society today. Notice what the Bible says about it here in uh, verse 11. The Bible tells us the Lord uh, judges. Verse 11 says, I saw heaven open and there was a white horse, and its rider is called faithful and true, and with justice he judges and makes war. There is a just war. There are wars that are unjust and, and for the wrong purposes and in the wrong ways, but there are just wars. And the Bible tells us the Lord, with justice, he judges and he makes war. He does this with justice. He judges justly. This ought to give us a little bit of pause. We like justice when we get something good from it. We don't like it so much when it affects us in a negative way. And the Bible says, with justice, the Lord judges. With justice, he makes war. In, um, in verse 15, the Bible tells us he has a sharp sword and that he's going to strike the nations with it. We see that the Lord is going to be, bring retribution upon our world. A sharp sword, and he's striking the nation with it. In verse 15, the Bible says he rules them with an iron rod. We see something of God's justice. Verse 15 says, this sounds Old Testament, and it is, but it's a description as well of what will happen. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of today and the God of the future. He will trample the winepress. Verse 15 is right in the Bible. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God. God always punishes sin. Sin is always wrong. It always causes damage and pain and hardship. And the Bible says the return of the king accomplishes his justice. And we will, we will see a, a generation that talks about justice and yet understand so little about justice. We need to hear this truth, that there's a God who judges justly, who makes war justly with a sharp sword and an iron rod and the great winepress of the wrath of God. We see something of the power of God. I have read a lot of books on um, battles and war and things. I'm being around all these military types all of these years here near our Air Force Base, I guess, affects that some. And I've read a lot uh, on the Civil War. And uh, I will say, I'm not a military expert or anything, but the uh, Civil War generals made, they made poor use of the Air Force. I'll just tell you, they did not take advantage. I'm not a general, or I, mean, I don't really know strategy, but you let a couple bombers, a couple of F-16s fly. That would have changed the battle scene. That's just my opinion. I don't, I don't know why they didn't think of that in the Civil War days. But nonetheless... Uh, I've found that time fascinating and just reading the history of that and all the horrendous difficulties and battles that transpired during that time. And if you follow the Civil War, you can't 
help follow the story of Abraham Lincoln, who as a young man traveled these roads in our area and lived right uh, in these regions. And uh, Lincoln, when he became president, that led, I mean, the, the country was falling apart. And in his first inaugural address, he talked about how the how this, the dangers that would come, and, and sure enough they did, with the schism in our country and, and the battles that would transpire. And then four years later, he was reelected. All, there was a, a real question for a long time about, of whether he would, and he was reelected. And, and so just a few weeks before he was assassinated, just a few weeks before the war would end, Lincoln gave this second inaugural address. Lincoln had an interesting spiritual background. His mother was a very committed Christian. Um, Lincoln read the Bible a lot when he was young, but he had all the questions and doubts that came with his age, just like many people. That say, you have a tendency to be affected by your age and the people around you, and it's easy for that to happen, and that happened to Lincoln as well. But especially when he got into the White House, things began to change as he saw something of the um, weight, the immensity of the weight of the responsibility there and his need for uh, God and discussions with a pastor there in D.C. and So that his second inaugural address reads a lot like a sermon. It's a short address, but it reads a lot like a sermon. And he quotes a good deal of scripture there. And let me just read a little section of this second inaugural address. I know it, it worries, when I say it reads like a sermon, I know that Makes you nervous, but bear with me for a second. So I'll start right kind of the middle of his address where he's talking about the two sides of the Civil War. He said, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistant, assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. We'll skip on down. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether." The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And somewhere down along the way, maybe by candlelight in the homes where he lived here in Illinois, he had read those verses from the prophet. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And he said, maybe the Lord is bringing justice to us through the sword. Maybe we ought not be surprised that we're facing this adversity and difficulty when we stand before a just God. 
it must be said that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And we look into the future in the book of Revelation and say the judgments of the Lord are, are right and true. They're true and righteous altogether. And he rightly judges our world. He comes on a white horse with a sword, with the rod, bringing justice and judgment. How thankful I am for the mercy and grace of the Lord given to us. How thankful I am that a just God would pay the penalty with his own blood so that we can be forgiven. The return of the king accomplishes justice. There's a third thing I want you to note with me. The, the return of the king provides his victory. And this is really what we see Beginning in verse 17, we see the victory that the Lord gives. We see the battle of Armageddon. Really, it's a, more of, a, I think, a, a campaign of Armageddon. The valley of Megiddo is this large valley in Israel. You can stand on the top of Mount Carmel, or Mount Carmel, as they would say there, uh, where Elijah stood in the days of the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18, and that great story of Mount Carmel and the victory God gave, and you can look from there out over this vast valley and see all of these cities and all the plain and imagine this huge battle at the end of time, really a series of battles that are transpiring on what we call Armageddon. And we're seeing something of the victory that will come. But it doesn't always seem like victory is coming, does it? It doesn't always seem that way. Us, my football teams don't always win. Some of you are born in a state or you just chose a team that was really good all the time and sort of frustrates me that you have that kind of success. My teams don't always win. Sometimes my teams will lose and it's frustrating for me. I'll just tell you, sometimes when I look at the issues of faith, it doesn't always seem like my team's winning. It doesn't always seem like my team's winning. I mean, I see people who are really good and godly people who are facing struggles and difficulties, adversity and challenges, and I know that they love the Lord. And I see people who are living for themselves and far from God, and they, it seems as though their life is moving along swimmingly. And I'll see people who are following God, and yet they have so little of this of the world's wealth. And then I'll see people who don't seem to care one thing about the things of God, and they have luxury all around them. It doesn't always seem like my side's winning. The culture doesn't seem to be just swimming towards God, does it? It doesn't seem as though the culture is saying, hey, let's, let's see what God wants. Let's do what God says. It seems to be quite the opposite in this generation. We watch us our culture argues against the things of God, what God says about sex or gender or a thousand other, the value of human life. We see the culture going in such different ways. It doesn't always seem like my side is winning. And yet appearances can be surprising because the Bible is reminding me that the game is not finished and that one day, ultimately, all will be made right. And that the Lord will set all things as they ought to be. The book of Revelation is telling us that one day the Lord is going to set all things right, make all things new. 
put, put all things as they should be, settle all accounts and scores. It would seem as though the beast and the prophet and the enemy is winning this battle in Revelation until you see the end of the story and the reminder of what the Lord has accomplished. So let me note a couple of things uh, with you. First, would you note there's a battle against the Lord that is coming. And we see that in the book of Revelation. There's a battle that's coming. And uh, by the way, it's not the battle of Armageddon is still to come, but the spiritual battle is going on right now, right now. There's a battle going on right now. Some of you are, have never given your life to Christ, and there's a battle going on around you. And you're saying on the one side, the enemy, of course, is reminding you, look at all the, look how pleasant the world's way is. So wide and smooth. Look at all the people going down that downhill path, how easy that will be. And then you see the Lord encouraging you on this narrow, uphill, lonely path toward his will and his purposes. And you feel that battle. And some of you, by the way, if you'll give your life to Christ, the Lord, the Bible says on the authority of God's word that God will forgive you and he'll give you victory. And that, the book of Revelation is talking about the ultimate victory. We'll see that un, un, uh, fold more and more in the next couple of chapters as we see God's victory. If you'll trust Christ as Savior, God will give you victory and over sin and death and hell and you can have eternal life and heaven can be your home and adopted into God's family and I want that for you and I pray today you'd find that victory even though the world uh, the world is calling you down this wide path God's got a better way for you and he's calling you to salvation but some of you know Christ as savior you found victory in Christ but you're not finding very much victory in this world right now you know something of what Paul was talking about when he talked about this spiritual battle how Paul said I the things I don't want to do I do and the things I I want to do, I don't. And there's this battle going on. It's raging. The old nature and the new nature. I'm new in Christ, but the old me is still fighting the battle. Some of you know that pretty well, don't you? And it seems like sometimes uh, that battle is raging and the enemy's pretty effective. That's his full-time job. And I want you to know that God knows well that battle going on around you. It's going on all the time. It's going on in our world. It's going on in your life. It's going on in our culture. There's a battle against the Lord, and the Bible tells us that will be ultimately come to, uh, come to a full fruition in Armageddon. And then there's a second thing I want you to note, though, and that is there's a victory by the Lord. It's not just a battle against the Lord. There's a victory. The Lord says in verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, an angel, standing in the sun. He called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God. By the way, there's two dinners mentioned in this chapter. Some have noted this, two dinners. One is the marriage supper of the Lamb that you're invited to eat. If you know Christ as Savior, it is rejoicing in the presence of God, the church, and fellowship with God. And the uh, second supper, um, you are the dinner. That's what the Bible is saying. People who will experience fully the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. And the Bible tells us in verse 19 and 20, the beast will be taken prisoner. That's the Antichrist, this false prophet, this religious leader. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire, and then next week we'll see more of Satan being bound and thrown into the fiery furnace as well. 
is a victory by the Lord. And God wants that for you. Maybe it doesn't feel much like victory now. But I'm telling you, God's promises. He is faithful and he's true. And he promises victory. He's saying that if you'll trust him as Savior, you can have victory over sin and death and hell. And he's faithful and he's true. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. And he promises that victory. And can I tell you something, Christian? He'll give you victory in this world. I'm not saying there will never be problems or difficulties or struggles, but he wants you to have victory in this world. Victory ultimately in heaven, but even in this world. He wants to use you to make a difference in this world. The return of the king means we can have victory knowing that he's coming back one day. God wants to use us to make a difference in this day. He can use you. You can make a difference through your witness, through your gifts and your talents and your resources. God will use you to make a difference in this world. God wants you to have victory over your past and your pain and your struggles. He wants you to be a testimony of what he can do in the life of a person. He wants you to make a difference through your influence, through your witness, through the use of your gifts and abilities and talents and uh, time and treasure for his glory. And it all happens because the king is coming back, riding on a white horse. Because our God's big enough to do something like that. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? If you're here, you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I want to ask you today to give your life to Christ. Recognize, just acknowledge to God, God, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you. You are holy and I'm not. I need you. I can't just improve myself. You don't want me just to try harder. You want to change me from the inside. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you rose from the grave, and I want to give my life to you. If you'll trust Christ as Savior, he'll save you. Ask him to save you, and he will. Christian, when I talked about that battle, some of you know that. It's just resonating in your life, the battle, the spiritual battle that's going on in your life right now. And while you know the promises of God about victory one day, I want to ask you to claim the victories of, of God for this day. God, I want to live the life you have for me. I want to make the difference that you have for me to make in this world. I want to be the witness you want me to be. I want to use my life to impact this world for you, knowing that one day you're coming back. You're coming back. I'm going to stand before you one day. I'm going to understand fully your majesty then. I'll understand the justice of your judgments then. I'll I'll see fully the victory then, but Lord, I want to experience that victory now. I want to live a life that counts for you. Father, thank you for this great chapter in the Bible, the power of it, the truth it teaches. Use it in our lives. Make us more of what you want us to be. Draw people who need to be saved. Draw Christians to a, uh, a life that counts instead of just following the ways of the world, something better and bigger and something more lasting and more important. Father, we thank you for what you teach us in your word so that we can live out this day, knowing what's coming one day, we can live this day for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.